Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all this year's NDC conferences are now being held online only. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. So go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And I'm home for just a couple of days on uh, from the Blazer Roadshow, which actually is called the Carl Franklin Blazer Roadshow. <laughs> I didn't know you were home. I thought you were in San Diego. That's why no, I'm engineering today. I'll be in Sa- well, I'm glad you're engineering because I'm home. I'm not at the studio. But right. um, no, I'm going to San Diego on Thursday. And I'm going to hang out with Michelle DeRubastamante and Tim Huckabee and and Zoiner and all those guys. Not that this makes any sense in context because this show publishes like a month later. But, right, you know. right. <laughs> but at this point in time, I've been out on the road. It's weird being out in a road ship without you, Richard. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, after Where's years Richard? and years. Right? I know. But it's not a .NET Rocks thing. It's a Blazor thing. No. And yeah. we have a couple hours to get the, the data across, the information across, and it just barely works. So I've been out for two weeks. We've done eight shows. We've got 12 more in the U.S. We just solidified London and uh, another place in the U.K. And it's really going great. People are loving it. They're loving the idea. And especially, you know, enterprise developers who have been waiting for something like this. You know, they got their hopes dashed with Silverlight. That was working for enterprise developers. But they're not so much JavaScript fans. Well, I, you know, we, we're, this show comes out just before Dev Intersection in Orlando and yeah. we've got a bunch of, we're very much focused on this idea of, Hey, you got a web forms app and you're thinking about modernization. Server side Blazor is the way to go. It's very much the same paradigms. It really is. And it's interesting that my better know framework today kind of fits into this narrative. Well, play that funky music. Play that funky music, white boys. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? So this is a blog post that I wrote um, about logging SignalR traffic in server-side Blazor. Oh. One of the things that people struggle to sort of understand is in server-side Blazor is where's all the goo? <laughs> like where's, the, <laughs> where's the HTTP requests and responses? Where's the AJAX? You know, where's the JavaScript? There is none of that. And there's not even C-sharp goo. It's just... It just works. I mean, you have a button click event handler and you, you match your, uh, you, you know, you bind it in the, the markup and it just works. So We're all deeply suspicious of magic now, though. Right, know, right. If, right. If so you've got to, some experience as a developer, you're just like, what's going on? Exactly. So to alleviate the sort of magic and pull back the curtains a little bit, I show in my talk and you can do this now. Just create a server side blazer app run it and open the network tools, you know, open the browser tools, F12, yep. and disable the cache and click on the network tab and hit the record button. And then just hit control F5. And you'll see, first of all, about 400K worth of uh, HTML, CSS, all that kind of stuff, JavaScript. Right. And then you'll see this underscore blazer you know, question mark, ID equals blah, 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 blah. Some <laughs> <laughs> And if you click on that, now that you'll be, you'll be watching. You won't be actually seeing the data itself, but you'll be seeing what's going across the wire in SignalR. Right. And it's very efficient. If you go to the counter, for example, and you click the counter button, it's like 400 uh, bytes back and forth, like 200 bytes go up. 128 bytes come back, another 23 go up. And then every once in a while, you see this three-byte ping back and forth. 
And but you don't really know what it is. So in this blog post that I wrote, logging SignalR traffic in server-side Blazor, I actually show you how to hook that um, SignalR traffic and show it in a in console. And you can actually awesome. see what's going on. See the stream. See the stream. That's cool. That's really useful, man. Thanks. It is useful. And it it speaks to the whole idea that server-side Blazor is, you know, forget about WebAssembly, which I think is going to revolutionize web programming, and if not all of programming. But server-side Blazor, as you said, great for stuff where you know you're always going to have a solid internet connection. There's actually very little traffic that goes over that wire. Right. And that's well, and really I also good. think, and you guys sort of set number of users too. Like I server-side Blazor for large scale public hosting, you got to think hard because that's a lot of work on a server. You're going to have scaling issues and you're going to have to state issues and things like that. Right. But for your average enterprise developer building something inside of the company, like this is why you used web forms in the first place. The metaphors, the sort of paradigms are the same. Right, the, the renders happening on the server. Yeah, what's interesting what you said there, the two issues of scalability. First of all, if you you can do state, you can do it just by adding scoped services. And sure. if you offload that state to a database or whatever, just as you would do in web forms with SQL Server, you know, move it off. Put it yeah. somewhere, but the, the, the thing is, it's and up don't to put it you on a relational database, please. Just put it in a blob store of some kind or a NoSQL store of some kind. We don't need relational. No, no, I totally agree. But the, the yeah. idea is, you can move it off. The thing is, mm -hmm. there's no mechanism by which you can do that. You just have to do it yourself. You, there, right. It's wide open in terms of how you yeah. do that. Right. And also, you can use Azure SignalR service instead of the built-in SignalR, because at some point you get, you know, with, with CPU and memory, you get a limit. Mm -hmm. With four virtual CPUs and 14 gigs of RAM, without SignalR service, you can handle about 20,000 concurrent connections, which is pretty good. That's lots. But it's a big server. And yeah, yeah. SignalR, Azure SignalR service scales indefinitely, depending on how much money you have. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's this is all bill. good stuff. Um, if you want, come out to see my roadshow at blazerroadshow.com. Who's talking to us today? Grab your comment off the of show 1670, the one we did in January, just this year, 2020, with Nick Molnar. We we're talking about Visual Studio Online, which I thought was very applicable in the, the DevOps space, just the right. way of thinking about... Well, in fact, this comment feeds in this nicely. This is from Doug Cameron, who says, uh, I had a quick play with Visual Studio Online for a simple project. And it works really well. I'm looking forward to seeing this evolve and how it would work with more complex environments with databases and so on. I've worked on many projects that are in maintenance mode, where it has taken longer to provision the environment than it has to investigate or fix an issue. And so Visual Studio Online looks like a great solution, right? This whole idea that you could maintain the state of an environment for a particular project so that you can just pop it open and get to work on it again. Right. When you think about uh, enterprise developers, hundreds of potential apps. Yeah. Right? That they, you know, and you, and you want to contain all those different configurations. You don't want to have a lot of crosstalk between them. Sure. Uh, VSO may really help with this. But... Let's make sure we don't cheap out on hardware for developers. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Yeah. I still want a capable machine at the end of the day. Soon you run Teams, Outlook, and a few other browsers. This is, dude, you, you can't plug productivity apps is the reason you need more of a machine. It's got to be Studio and those other tools that are the reason you need more of the machine. Although yeah. I still firmly believe that developer productivity is directly related to the number of um, vertical pixels you have available to you. Right. Right. And particularly vertical. You know, you've only got a few handful of choices here, right? You're at 1600 by 1200 or you're at 1440 or the ultimate 4K at 2160. Although then taking the scale factor, most 20, you know, 4K screens are scaled so much you don't even get to use all those pixels, which is why I'm still smug about my 43 inch ah. Dell with everybody sick of hearing about. <laughs> <laughs> But the 43-inch Dell at 4K at 100 DPI means I get all 2,160 vertical pixels to write code on, which is actually, when you fully expand that on Studio, if you have a method or a function that fills that entire line thing, it's probably too long. Yeah. 
You know, the, this, you know, the great size of a chunk of code, considering my, my, my font size and things. I, I try to keep it shorter than that now. <laughs> so maybe yeah. that's just me. So, uh, Douglas, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or at any of the social medias. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Be a trailblazer. <laughs> Just say it. Richard, <laughs> your monitor is bigger than my TV. Yeah, yeah, well, no. <laughs> That's Sorry, only, just, it's only one of the monitors, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that was the voice of Enrico Campidolio with a strong passion for acquiring and sharing knowledge. If allowed, he'll talk for hours about software quality, the DevOps culture, the history of personal computing and mechanical keyboards. One topic he's particularly fond of is Git, which, as he discovered, combines two of his other passions, the Unix philosophy and source code history. Enrico speaks regularly at conferences and user groups, delivers workshops, and produces online courses for Pluralsight. In his non-existent free time, Enrico enjoys reading books about computer history, tinkering with his keyboards, or going for a run. He can be found online on his website at megakemp, M-E-G-A-K-E-M-P dot com, or on Twitter at ecampadolio, E-C-A-M-P, I-D-O-G-L-I-O. Welcome back, Enrico. Thank you. Happy to he happy to be here. It's been too long, man. Like those shows are from like 2015. Holy man. Holy man. Yeah, five years. Yeah. Fly been, been flies by time. Yeah. Yes. Well, stuff's definitely been going on, right? And cool new bits, things and, and stuff to work on. It's it's great. Right? Time passes fast when you're when you're having fun. Better than a real job, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> eh, agreed. <laughs> I still hear people confusing GitHub and Git. Yeah, so my usual response to that, you know, you know what they say about um, Java and JavaScript. They say them Java is to JavaScript what car is to carpet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love that. It's beautiful. Yeah, but here, here is here is the other one. Git is to GitHub what car is to carport. <laughs> Carport. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good. deep. That is deep. I'm thinking about that. It's like I'm wow, trying not my, to actually. Yeah, my world. Is yeah, no, changed. don't think about it too much. Yeah, it's not going to make you smarter, but it is correct. It is correct. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, GitHub, of course, is the is a, a a place on the internet where everybody can agree. Uh, we can have our server where we can have the canonical copy of our project. And it uses Git as the protocol to do the source control. Yeah. But of course, Git being a distributed source control system, every repository is equal to all the others. So there is no implicit main central copy like in traditional source control systems, like for example, uh, Subversion or you know, CVS. Um, so every repository is equal. We just happen to agree on that we have one, one of them is deemed the canonical one. Right. Just because it's easier, of course. Otherwise we'll be sending commits to each other, like in a peer to peer network. And that's really not feasible well, for software, for software development. That is not smart anyway. I, do you see any differences? Microsoft has now owned GitHub for a couple of years. Uh, I know there are friends of ours, guys like uh, Martin Woodward, that are now working over there. It stayed sort of the wholly owned subsidiary, but I really don't see any change in GitHub per se. No, and that's uh, so. Of course, one of the big fears uh, of the GitHub or, or the open source community when the announcement came that Microsoft was going to acquire it was that um, it was going to change somehow. And of course, you know, the pessimist will always think that it was going to change for the worse somehow. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, Microsoft assured everyone that it was not going to change what GitHub is. On the, uh, on the contrary, it will uh, help in enrich the platform with other services that are coming from the other offerings that Microsoft has in the DevOps space. Mm -hmm. For example, build automation and and deployment automation and that kind of infrastructure. Uh, the question that I asked myself was what happens with 
uh, at the time it was still called Visual Studio Team Services, uh, which was the uh, uh, Microsoft equivalent of GitHub, so to speak. So to speak. And uh, yeah, so my guess was that eventually uh, we would have both offerings at the same time. And one was going to be uh, directed for the enterprise where you have integration with Active Directory and better uh, access management. And uh, that was going to be VSDS, which is today Azure DevOps. And GitHub was going to be basically the equivalent service, but for open source project or small teams or startups, uh, organizations that don't necessarily have a directory service to manage. Right. Is Azure DevOps going to be with us for long... uh, in the long haul, do you think that it's it might go away? I think so because it, there is still a place for um, a a central place where you can organize your project and have your source code that is integrated with Active Directory, and uh, it kind of follows the Microsoft Enterprise suite of products right because in in many organizations organizations that have a an agreement with microsoft maybe their partners they immediately they would like to stay within the microsoft offerings they don't necessarily want to jump over to something like github so github doesn't have the enterprise and not that you can't use azure devops with github no, absolutely not. But it's just a mental model that it's widespread. You no, know, GitHub is for open source, and uh, Azure DevOps is for the for the commercial software. But of course, that's not the case. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm just talk- talking about what the general perception is. Right, right. So GitHub doesn't have any of those enterprisey features like access access to Active Directory. Do GitHub Actions help us? I mean, we can certainly kick off workflows that exist outside of GitHub with those. I mean, does that make yeah, it so- easier uh, for the enterprise developer to to have a more uh, Azure DevOps experience? Yeah, absolutely. You you touched on uh, two two things there: the, the um, access control management side, and then you have the automation side. Yeah. So there is something called GitHub for Enterprise which is a way to manage group of users and give them uh, read-write access to different repositories or the, the right to create uh, issues and you know manage pull requests. Uh, and that's within what GitHub calls the organization. So you have an, organiza- an organization and within it you have repositories and then you can have you know manage your users uh, that way. So there is something called GitHub for Enterprise for access management, but it's not integrated with Active Directory. Yeah. At least not that I know of. And, it's, um, and, it, and it is still a retail product. You pay for GitHub Enterprise. Yeah, you pay for that, of course. So that goes back to, the, to my point earlier that if you already have a Microsoft license or a Microsoft subscription, then you want to you know, use as much of it as possible instead of you know, spending more money for a different service. Yeah. If you're already paying for for Azure, it makes a lot of sense to to stay over there. And it, I think it's it's. I still get the sense that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Enrico, but like Azure DevOps seems more mature too. Like they've got a lot of features in there now already, and its ability to work with a lot of different stacks. Like it's just painless to integrate in a Jenkins pipeline for some web dev guys. Like all of those sorts of things are. Or, or, and hop to Terraform, like it's pretty trivial to make all that work and to have an overall view of a CI and CD process from the consoles of Azure DevOps. Yeah, and that's because Azure DevOps is uh, an evolution of uh, what used to be called Visual Studio Team Services. Right. So there is all that functionality that has been there. I mean, since uh, I remember automating builds in um, Visual Studio Team Services back in 2012. Yeah, yeah. So it's just got this uh, length of code that's allowed the feature shift. Because I'm pretty excited about actions, but it seems very young. Yeah, it's it's brand new, basically. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. So there is a definitely an advantage in using something that's been you know battle tested and proven, and with all the integrations with the uh, with the other Microsoft services. And let's not forget that Azure DevOps can still maybe I shouldn't say it. Let's not let's not tell anyone, but you can still host a Visual uh, Visual Studio, sorry, a Team System Source Control 
within Azure DevOps, it, do, it doesn't have to be Git. So you can have a uh, team system, what is it called now? Team foundation server version control. You can still have that in Azure DevOps. Yeah. That's the original. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be Git. I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm, going, I'm excited to add the TFS tag to this show because right. it's been a while since we've added the TFS tag to any show. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> well, I have nothing bad to say about it, but you know, they, they when Brian Harry was retiring uh, and uh, Adam Kogan was running around sort of getting quotes from everybody about, uh, you know, what Brian Harry meant to the company. And, and I've had a chance to talk to Brian extensively about .NET and so forth. And uh, so I made actually, I made Adam record me twice. The first was, you know, me saying how Brian Harry was the engineer's engineer. Everybody respects him. His approach to software was remarkable. It's almost enough to forgive him for visual source safe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost, which was funny. Uh, the second one was that I've teased about SourceSafe before. The second one was the fact that the man basically, after making the first GUI source control, which is what VSS actually was, then went on to make the brand new one, which was called TFS, which was really the competitor to uh, Rational Rose. Yeah. And then well, a few years a later, remade it as VSTS as a competitor to Atlassian. Like he, he wrote f- f- source control three times. Yep. Or led teams to build source control three times. And it, I think, it, and then they, but they didn't rename it. And I think that's part of the problem is that nobody really understood how very different VSTS was from TFS. But they all, Absolutely. they had very different jobs, very different ways of thinking. You come at it from a rational Rose approach, the true enterprise blocking, locking, um, source control system. With, for within a company with very strict rules and then to much more over to the distributed source, you know, conflict revolution at res- resolution after the fact mindset. And they did both. Yeah. And that follows the same rules as databases. If you think about it, yeah. Yeah. I often refer to a, a um, version control system to a transactional database where every commit uh, you make is like you're making a transaction. Mm-hmm. And that's the pessimistic locking model versus the optimistic one. Yes. So that's exactly the same concept applied to version control. And, and, and one of those fundamentals of software we've always dealt with. It's like, are you going to stop conflicts from happening or are you going to f- come up with resolutions when they do? Exactly. Right. And Which is one of the great strengths of Git b- being a distributed source control system where there is, where there is no locking. The merge, uh, conflict, um, handling is, um, no top notch because uh, conflicts are going to happen. So mm-hmm. we might as well build in building features that you know, allows us to uh, allows uh, allows us to tackle them in an insane way. True, true enough. So how do you explain GitHub Actions to folks? I don't know if we really even dug into that. So um, the elevator pitch is um, it's not it's not even a full floor in an elevator, it's maybe half a floor <laughs> where <laughs> where GitHub Actions is the CI C D solution by GitHub. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, and that's it. <laughs> but there is actually much more than that. So, you know, GitHub has had a history of uh, integration with um, build servers uh, since many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing you did, uh, if you had an open source project or even just your own project, one of the first thing you did, of course, is you know, created the repo, uh, you know, committed some code, and then you want to build this code with every commit. Uh, but uh, before GitHub Actions, there was no way to do that within GitHub. So you had to set up a build server somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And that somewhere else could have been, uh, depending on what you were building, you would use maybe something like AppVayor if it was on Windows, or Travis CI if, if we're building something on Linux, or even uh, Team City. Uh, but then how do you connect that external build server to your GitHub repo? So the story there was uh, something that GitHub calls webhooks. Right. And so whenever something happens in a repo, uh, an event occurs. Uh, and the most basic event you, th- you can think of is you're pushing some new commits. So there is this push event. Now, what you can do, then, and this event is going to fire on the GitHub server, so to speak, within their infrastructure. 
So what you can do is that you can register a new URL that belongs to an, an external server, an HTTP uh, URL, and then you can register this URL with GitHub. And what GitHub will do is that every time a certain event fires, they are going to send an HTTP post request to that URL that you registered. Right. And whatever the, the service that's behind that URL uh, can then gather information about what, what kind of event that was and all the details around it. So for example, if this was a push event, you will get the um, all the information about the new commits that were pushed, along with the information about the repository, the user who made the push, and so on and so forth. And all this uh, payload wa- was in JSON format. Mm-hmm. So these were called the webhooks event, and that, that has been part of GitHub for uh, many years. Now, what GitHub action is, is basically what these build servers will do externally, but now it's happening inside the same infrastructure as the rest of GitHub. So the advantage of using GitHub Actions is that, of course, it's integrated, completely integrated with the GitHub UI, for example. Mm-hmm. It gets, you get a, a new tab on your repository page called Actions. And if you can click on it, you can get an, a dashboard with the state of your builds. Uh, and you can also look at the logs. So basically everything that the build server will do, now it's integrated within GitHub. But there is even more than that. So before these external build servers, traditionally, they will just react on new commits being pushed because that, or maybe a new tag was being created, at which point maybe you want to create a release and do a deployment of some, some sort. But in within GitHub, there are many more events that fire all the time. So for example, if you are, someone is creating an issue or closing an issue or uh, opening a pull request or um, maybe requesting a code review, there, there, is, there are events for everything. And what GitHub Actions can do is that it, it allows you to create automated processes that react on all of these events. So of course, you, then you can have automated processes that not only build your software, but maybe they automate other kind of workflows that are more project management related, for example, triaging issues or automatically creating a um, release when, uh, when you close a milestone, for example. Right. What about testing in that scenario too, right? Like I, I see this sort of line between CI and CD is large scale distributed testing where I actually have to do a bunch of deployments to, to multiple test rigs to scale out, you know, this deep set of tests that I have. Yeah, you can absolutely do deployments. Uh, but, um, so there, there is, so you start, usually you start with continuous integration where you, you basically just, just, not just yeah, merely build the code merely, correctly. You're <laughs> merely building your code yeah. and running, Remember we and used running to have your build tests. Build masters because that's how hard that was. We uh, made it one guy's fault. <laughs> what what used to be one person's responsibility? Yes, sole job. <laughs> and when they were on vacation, we don't build software here anymore. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but that's unfortunately that's actually still the reality in many places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's surprising. And it, we say it mockingly for the folks that are still living like that. They just think, wow, we don't have to live like that. No, you don't. I mean, that's what continuous integration is actually about is that we build tools so that we have a reliable integration process that you can get to. This is a package of deployable code, fully automated. And it, life is better when that happens. <laughs> yeah. I just got a picture of someone, someone in the world that's putting down the podcast, running out in a green field and screaming, I'm free. Ah, it's over. I don't have the job anymore. <laughs> you could do something fun, you know, like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer rather than being a build master. Holy man. Yeah. It's a hard it's, job. It's really not that different. <laughs> yeah. Being, hitting yourself in the hammer hurts less. Actually, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so um, to got, get back to the CI, so you start with CI where you're building building your your uh, source code and running the tests, and even hopefully creating some kind of artifact like a let's say a NuGet package, right? And and then it stops there, and then you have the the deployment part where 
not necessarily on every commit, but you should be able at any point to have to trigger an automated process to take that package and install it on some kind of server, which um, could be production. It doesn't have to be. It could right. also be like a QA environment yes, or a staging environment, environment or something like that. And Enrico, um, I'm going to interrupt you for one moment for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. There's Carl Franklin. Yo. And we're talking to Enrico about uh, GitHub Actions. And this, I, I really feel like we're just sort of modernizing this DevOps mindset of automating all, all of the steps. But I feel like testing is not talked about enough because you talk about a big change to an organization. It is automated testing. Yeah, and that doesn't actually that starts much earlier than the CI part because first, in order to automate your tests, you need to write the tests. Now you're just talking crazy talk, Enrico. <laughs> crazy talk. <laughs> Sorry, what? I hate. I hated to break it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's surprisingly still a challenge in many places where, may so maybe you have teams that uh, question the. Um, um, question the value of writing more code to test the existing code. Sure. But even when you get over that and you prove that, you know, it, it's a safety net to have code that tests your code, but then you have the second problem is that, but how do you write good tests? Right. Well, and I also distinguish into the tests that developers write, the unit test mindset versus really QA folks who do much more integration functional and and regression test exactly so it's actually a team effort mm -hmm. and and that is something that the entire organization or at least the entire team has to sign sign up for sure um, and especially getting automated like so many qa groups i've met like clicking on buttons is what they want to do they feel productive about that the idea that it would use tools to do suites of deeper tasks like that's and i also see where that's for folks go really wrong like every update breaks all of those tests yeah, and that's uh, so. That's partly a a cultural problem there, but there's also a technology problem. But mm -hmm. um, so I know that there are some UI automation uh, test products that allow you to um, identify elements, for example, by ID rather than um, coordinates on the screen, right? Or tab count. Yeah, exactly. But still, of course, uh, if it's also a trade-off because if you are, for example, if you are developing a completely new product or a new service, then your UI is going to change from iteration to iteration in your development process. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe at, at that f uh, stage of the project, it's easier to just test manually also because you're maybe still defining the test scenarios or the, the, users, the user acceptance uh, scenarios. But then once you have them down, then you can automate them with some UI automation product. Yeah, I have more acceptance for serious breaking of stuff like uh, uh, functional testing and so forth between V1 and V2. Just because you learn so much about how people actually use your software that it's just not that big a deal. But as software matures, more importantly, it's like a software iterates slower, like kind of goes into maintenance. Those kind building out those kinds of tests are hugely valuable. If there's not going to be a change for several months because it's fine, but now you have to go back and do security fixes, those kinds of functional tests that don't break very frequently now because there's not as much change, they're the difference between you, you know, being unable to make that security patch and, and having it be trivial. Absolutely. And they allow you to move fast because you know that the event, any regressions are going to be catched yeah, by the automated catch tests. Your mistakes. So. You're not going to, you're not making the users find your mistakes. Because they're going to, exactly. you know, one way or the other, the software gets tested. The question is, did it get tested on the user? Who is it going to, yeah. who is it going to be? Hey. <laughs> who finds the bug? <laughs> Turns out everybody's QA. You know, it just amazes me how much easier it is to set up a CI CD pipeline now than it was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, no kidding. Like, I'm, at Next, we used to regularly get customers who, you know, I just need somebody to set me up a CI CD pipeline in Azure. Because, you know, it was a little bit complicated just a couple, a few years ago. Yeah. I blame Donovan Brown. 
You know, otherwise none of his demos work. It had to be that fast. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, now it seems like, I mean, is this something that your average enterprise developer, co-manager can handle? So it, it's, so that's the dev part of the DevOps culture. You still need to have some technical knowledge to set up a deployment pipeline. Okay. Do you still need YAML in 2020? Well, yeah, I actually would recommend that you use uh, YAML because then you can source control your build process. Right. right. I mean, I love YAML for what it does. It's just like, it, it's just like uh, taking a hammer to my head sometimes. I know. It's, um, it's, it's, not, a, it's not really a markup language, but it looks a lot like a markup. It's, it's a glorified dictionary. No, right, yeah. It's a lot like... <laughs> what tool are you using when you're using YAML? Is that Ansible you were talking about? No, you just write it as text. It's uh, it's uh, like a key value. Um, it's like a JSON file right. with a slightly different syntax. But what's so running can, it? What uses YAML? Uh, so the in YAML you define your your build steps and what happens in its in each step, and then you have the build server parsing that. It's like a, having a build script. Okay. The build server parses that and then executes upon the. The different uh, so steps. you writing your own build server at that point to use YAML, or are you using a tool? No, you are you no, you are no, you are not writing the build server per se, but right. you are defining your build process. So you are you are writing a build script. You can think of in the make days, you will have a make file that describes the different steps like compile and link. And, right. So and, are you, in the context you are speaking in, then is like in Azure pipelines, I write YAML. You don't have to if you don't if you don't want to. You don't have to. You can also define it visually, right? Um, through the through the UI. But if you get good at YAML and you can essentially write the entire pipeline, everything that happens from and now with GitHub Actions, you check code in, fire stuff off, and you you're building containers. You're deploying them to Kubernetes. Like it's it's crazy absolutely. what you can do. There isn't anything you can't do. It's just not all that intuitive. Yeah, d- absolutely. There, there are no limits with, because uh, what happens in each step, uh, it's up to you. You can call out to command line tools, for example, or you can even, so in the case of GitHub Actions, uh, a GitHub Action, a singular, is uh, like a, a unit of work, which can uh, you know execute something that you don't necessarily have control, fr- control of from the workflow, but you invoke, like you're invoking a function or you're invoking a method. Mm-hmm. So you're passing parameters to these actions and they can go off and do a bunch of, st- bunch of stuff. Um, so one of the other advantages uh, of GitHub Actions per se is that the concept of building your own actions is part of the, the, um, is part of the platform. And it's, it's very easy to create your own actions Compared to, for example, if you're thinking about uh, a build server like Service CI, for example, or others, it's it's not impossible, but it's not it's definitely not part of the value proposition that you should be able to package uh, functionality in reusable steps mm-hmm. and reuse them across different workflows. But that's something that's in GitHub Actions. So, if you want, we can talk about a little bit about that. Yeah. Custom, you know, what are the cases for building custom actions? Like, what's the right thing to do there? So, um, so in uh, in a GitHub Actions uh, workflow, you have some control structures. For example, you can say that a certain step should only run when a certain condition is true. For example, if a environment variable is set to a certain variable, um. And you can also create dependencies between different parts of your workflow. For for example, you can say that the um, the packaging of your software should not happen until all the tests are passed, and the tests uh, should not run unless the code is compiled. So you are building this chain of dependency within your workflow, and that's all supported is in the YAML. So you don't have to write your own actions. But what happens if you have something that you want to run in a loop, for example? Let's say that you are packaging multiple multiple projects. You have a solution with different projects, and you have a different projects should result in, in different NuGet packages. So maybe you have one step that should run in a kind of a for each for each project. You should run this packaging step. 
Then there, there are no uh, loop structures in a workflow, in the workflow syntax. So in that case, you can write an action where you can pass it maybe an array of paths for your, uh, of your project files, and the action will do the iteration and the packaging. Uh, because once you create a GitHub action, you can uh, you have the full ex you have the full power of a programming language. Now, what programming language is that? You might ask, and that's where I have to tell you that is JavaScript. <laughs> oh no! You know, you had <laughs> me up until JavaScript. Yeah, I was I really so ready. <laughs> but I have I have on the I have also good news. Uh, piece of news, and that's that you don't have to use JavaScript, you just have to compile it or transpile it to JavaScript. You can use TypeScript instead. Well, that's good. Yeah. So that's a little better. It's a little stru more structured anyway. Yeah. So a GitHub action can be a set of TypeScript files where you can write uh, that run on Node, uh, and then you can write anything. So you can write any, any code that does anything. Uh, loops and, uh, and all that kind of, and calling out to different uh, node modules, for example, to do other things. And from the point of view of your workflow, that's just something you call out to, pass some parameters, and maybe you can even get some return values back. Right. But within that action, anything could happen. <laughs> something good, uh, hopefully. And something bad. <laughs> That's something bad. <laughs> that's so that's funny. one side of the equation. So you can use JavaScript to automate anything. Or the other one, which is actually my favorite, is that you can, uh, a GitHub action can be a Docker container. The action is to start the Docker container? Yeah, so you have two possibilities there. You can either have in a container image already made, mm -hmm. which has all the tools that you want to orchestrate together. And then GitHub Actions will pull that down from a registry and run the entry point script for that container. Or you can even let GitHub Actions produce the, uh, the image for you, hmm. at which point you are defining a Docker file, which describes uh, what image your container should be based right. on, what can, you can install tools in, within the container, and then you can have your entry point script that orchestrates those tools. And uh, from the perspective of the workflow, it's j still just an action. Okay. So what would you do in a container? Like, can you give me a scenario for this? Yeah. So if you compare it to JavaScript actions, JavaScript actions, they run uh, JavaScript code on Node, and it runs directly on the host, and it's very fast. But the downside is that if you want to, which you, what you're usually going to do, you're going to call out to some other tool to do the actual work, those tools must be installed on the host that's running your build. Right. So as part of your action, you also need to, you know, install modules, install tools. If you are actually, if one of the tools requires a runtime, for example, you are calling out to a .NET, a .NET Core tool, then you need that tool to be also installed as part of the action. So you have all this setup that's required if you are going to do anything useful. With Docker actions, those are self-contained. You are preparing the container with everything that's needed to do the actual work. So if you are calling out to a .NET tool, then you can have you can describe you know, in your Docker file everything that needs to be installed in the container. And once the action gets uh, activated by the workflow, then you don't need to worry about what's installed or not installed on the host, because everything is self-contained within the container. Ah, uh, okay. So this scenario would be if you have, for example, a tool that requires uh, Ruby, let's say, or requires Python, and you want to package this uh, tool within a GitHub action so you can reuse it across different workflows, you will do that as a Docker action because then you can configure your container to have Python, to have Ruby pre-installed, the correct versions and everything, and then you can distribute that as a GitHub action and it can run on any any host hmm. because it's it's virtualized within the container. If it makes sense. No, and it just you know suddenly operating systems don't matter, right? You use whatever template you want. Like it's not a big deal. Exactly. The downside that right now those Docker uh, Docker actions can only run on Linux. Ah, right. Okay. So yeah, 
Well, yeah, Win- Docker for Windows is still doesn't seem ready. Yeah, it's it's usable, but it's um, yeah, it's definitely not as mature as the Linux uh, version, the original one. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, they, they they're trying to get there, but I'm still waiting for uh, for for time. How does a uh, how does something that ran in a container like that feed back to the pipeline of actions that it failed, it succeeded, or you know some kind of report? Like, what's that mechanism look like? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question. So it's rather elegant the way that GitHub Actions allows um, actions to communicate to the workflow and and um, the other way around. So it basically it happens in two ways: either through environment variables or through the build log itself. So if you if you th- if you start with environment variables, if you are passing parameters to a um, to an action, those para- from the workflow, those parameters are actually being defined as environment variables that start with the prefix input underscore and then the actual name of the parameter. Okay. And then you can read those values from within the action just to you by reading the environment variable. Cool. It's completely transparent. So that's very elegant. The other way you can communicate is through the build log. So the build log is basically the output of whatever is happening during the build gets sent to one location. Right. And, and that's and the, that's the what build I was thinking log. about is what's the output of a container? Exactly. Now, if there is, there is a syntax, if you write an entry in the build log that follows a certain syntax, then the GitHub Actions runtime, well, the, the host, is going to parse that and interpret it as a command. And this syntax starts with a double colon and then a certain name. And then you can pass other parameters to your commands. For example, one of the commands would be return a value back to the workflow. So if the action sends just a string to the build log, that starts with colon colon set dash output and then the name of the output parameter and then the value, then the GitHub Actions runtime is going to make that value available as a return value. Nice. And then you have a bunch of other actions you can use. For example, you can print debug statements. You can set environment variables by printing a certain command to the build log. And these, these commands are called logging commands. Right. I could also see you getting in terrible trouble with this. Like now, once you're inside of a container running your own code, you could go off the deep end. Like makes this is definitely one of those it's your own foot kind of moments. It's like you have all the power <laughs> yeah. in the world now. You know, don't set a null pointer for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, but the advantage there is also that if you're taking down anything, you're taking down the container. Yeah. You're yeah, the only taking thing you're down the entire the container. host. And I would also presume the container dies at the end of this process, typically. Yeah, and that's one of, one of the downsides uh, with Docker Actions is that they are slower to run right. compared to JavaScript ones because right. GitHub Actions has to uh, either pull the image down from a registry or, in some other cases, create the image first and then run the container. Right. So you have all this startup costs. Yeah, well, and you, and you get back to how fast is your build... How, you know, how fast is deployment? Like some of these can get quite costly. Yeah, it's, it's all about having fast feedback. So definitely in some cases, it's a trade-off. You, you don't, have, don't want to have to wait too, too long to know if um, everything went well or not. So Yeah, whether it's behaving properly or not. Absolutely. Um, what else do we need to know? Other features of uh, GitHub Ashes we haven't talked about yet? What about matrix builds? Yeah, yeah that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, yeah, so matrix builds. So um, GitHub Actions supports multiple operating systems, so you can run your builds, you know, um, Windows, Mac OS, Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also have your step or uh, your workflow um, run on different combinations of operating systems and software. So, for example, let's say that you want to you have a node application and you want to run your tests and you want to run these tests not only on multiple on windows and linux right but you also want to run them on multiple versions of node itself right 
So what you, what, you, what you then can define in a workflow is you're defining a, literally a matrix where on one axis you have the operating systems and on the other axis you have the versions of Node and GitHub Actions will run all, all combinations of the two. Nice. And the best part, it will run them in parallel. And that's, so there's a built-in parallelism here now that if you hand it a matrix, it fires them all simultaneously. So we're getting exactly. back to that smart testing scenarios where we want to test a wide scope of configurations and you can define exactly. that and, and have them all rip up and run them in containers so they light up faster than VMs and uh, and can do the, the fundamental tests you need to do. Exactly. Because uh, but get, getting back to Docker containers, Docker is deeply integrated within GitHub Actions. Mm -hmm. So not only can you have your GitHub Action run in a container, but you can also run containers within the workflow itself. So let me explain. So if you can have your build process that instead of com instead of finishing with a NuGet package, instead it can finish with a Docker image with your software installed. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you can continue the workflow and say, now I want to run my tests uh, on this container in different versions. Now it's limited to Linux, of course, but you can have it on different versions of Linux, or you can have also di different images where your software is running on multiple versions of the .NET frameworks, uh, for example, of .NET Core. Right. Then you can run them all in parallel. So you can run your own application can be tested inside a container as part of your workflow. Okay. Um, does it matter whether they're the are pi private or public repositories when you run GitHub Actions? Can they work on both? Uh, yeah, so there is this distinction because um, so a GitHub Action is uh, has to be hosted on a repository, right? Kind of that's not a surprise. But if the repository is public or private, uh, does matter. So if you have an action that's on a public repository, that can be consumed by any other repo on Earth. Doesn't okay. really matter. Yeah. Wide open. Exactly. And it doesn't even, something that maybe surprises some is that it doesn't even have to be on the marketplace. So there is something called the GitHub marketplace mm -hmm. where you can publish an action and make it available to everyone. But the thing is, it's already available to everyone. Publishing on the marketplace just makes it more discoverable. Right. Because the marketplace has a search feature and then there are categories of actions. So it makes it easier to find but it's already open to everyone. Well, if you're in an open repository in GitHub, it's an open source project and and your action uh, library is also an open source project. Exactly. Unless you put it in a private repository. Right. And at that point, it's going to be you it can be referenced by workflows that are either in the same repo as the action itself or from other repos within the same organization. So that means that if you have a, a, if you want to have actions that are specific to your own organization, maybe they call out to certain systems that you have, uh, then you can have them in private repos and they can still be used by all the projects within your organization. Nice. So I'm really picking up that actions goes way beyond CICD. Yeah, absolutely. You can, there, there are no limits to what you can do. If you can, right. you can, if you can write JavaScript for it, you can automate it. Yeah. That's wow. <laughs> or if, if you can have it uh, in a container, you can automate it. Yeah. Well, geez. What's the downside? The downside of where's the quicksand? Where's the gotchas? Are there any? Uh, well, if you're talking about the difference between JavaScript and Docker, there is the difference that um, the JavaScript actions require the setup part, and they also require you to uh, to write JavaScript or TypeScript, which is better. And the downside of Docker action is that they're slower, and uh, they're slower to start and they're slower to run, because the that container is going to live just as long as the workflow is running, and then it's going to be turned turned down afterwards. Are there are there any downsides in general to using GitHub Actions? Well, GitHub. Are there any things that you really have to watch out for? It doesn't sound like it. GitHub. The, no, not not. There are no downsides beside the fact that GitHub Actions is designed for projects that are hosted on GitHub. So, right. 
Yeah. So the requirement is that you are actually hosting your project on GitHub. Doesn't have to be public, can be private, but still sure. needs to be on the, um, which is not so uh, tying back to the discussions we had at the beginning that not all uh, large organizations are particularly um, comfortable with having code on GitHub, even if it's a private repo because it's generally associated with open source and free software and so there is this mental hurdle, so to speak, to having stuff on GitHub. So it's nice to see that there are a lot of actions already there, like the Google Cloud Platform actions, you know, so that you can do a Google Kubernetes, uh, Cloud Run, Compute Engine, like all of that. Those things are sort of right there. You can just plug into it. Yeah, there are. So the marketplace is growing with actions. And there is a, um, there is also a nice, uh, built in model to consuming actions that are being maintained by someone else. Yeah. So, for example, this is maybe, you see, switching gear. I make it just mention it. So, the way you reference an action uh, that's maintained by someone else, well, even your own, but uh, it's after you, you uh, from within your workflow, yeah, there is a, a you, you use the uses keyword and afterwards you are basically saying what's the name of the organization or user that, uh, that has the, the repository. Then you say slash repository name. And that's where the, the repository where the action is hosted. But afterwards you have, you, you append an at sign. And after that you define the version of the action that you want to consume. Because the, those actions, they may evolve and you know, new versions are coming out. So you have to be specific and say, okay, what, what version of the action do you want to use in your workflow? Right. And in this case, and, uh, that whatever comes after the at sign is actually a git tag that's being on, that, that exists on the repository where the action is hosted. Yeah. So let's say, for example, uh, and that follows, ideally, that follows a semantic versioning. So you have username slash repo at v1.0.0. Then I'm using that version of the action. If the owner of the action publishes 1.1.0, you are not automatically getting that in your workflow. You are still referencing the 1.0 version. Right. Uh, so how do you solve that? So what um, GitHub Actions uh, makes available is that if you define a you, if you define a version that's just the major version, so for example you have v1.0.0, but then you have also another tag called just v1. If you if you as a consumer of an action decide that you know what I don't want to reference the f- exact full version, I just want to reference the major one then whenever a new version of the action comes out, as long as it's in the same major version, you are getting the latest patch version or minor version. Mm. I don't know if it makes sense. I think I follow. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of, ref- instead of hardcoding your action to 1.0.0, you say, I just want to hardcode my uh, reference to V1, and whenever V1.1.0 comes out, your workflow is going to automatically get that because it's within the V1 major version. Very cool. And um, just before we wrap up, I noticed that there are also actions for deploying the Azure, like Azure login, uh, getting secrets from Key Vault, um, deploying a web app uh, into a container, deploying a serverless app, a Docker containerized app, Kubernetes, uh, deployed databases, uh, Azure pipelines, so that there's the integration there with uh, Azure DevOps. Very cool stuff, man. This is uh, quite intriguing. Yeah, awesome stuff, man. Yeah, and it's also free for open source. Fantastic. What about um, is there? Would you use GitHub Actions with Azure DevOps? Does that make any sense? Those are uh, equivalent offerings, but with different uh, target audiences. Sure. Yeah, so it's really kind of one or the other. It would make sense to use both. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, and also, so Azure Azure DevOps also has the possibility for you to define your own uh, steps, your own actions. 
uh, but that's not the same toolkit that you use as GitHub Actions. And the YAML is slightly similar, but not not the same. <laughs> so there, you no, know, there is a lot of overlap between the two, but they are com- they are different offerings. So depending on uh, again, depending on what your organization or your project prefers, then it's one or the other. Great stuff, man. And uh, man, Enrico, thanks for hanging out with us. This is really enlightening stuff. Thank you for having me. You bet. Yeah, great stuff, bud. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.